WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Why is it that in 2023, race and income are two of the biggest predictors of how close you live to an environmental hazard in the United States? This is the question that Dr. Eric Brittmore raises when he thinks about how to conduct his science, soil science. And just to be clear about that opening statement, there's a large body of research to support it, including this conclusion from a study published by the NIH. Blacks and respondents at lower educational levels and, to a lesser degree, lower income levels, were significantly more likely to live within a mile of a polluting facility. Racial disparities were especially pronounced in the metropolitan areas of the Midwest and West and in suburban areas of the South. These results add to the historical record demonstrating significant disparities in exposures to environmental hazards in the U.S. population and provide a paradigm for studying changes over time in links to health. But that's only part of the environmental justice picture. Even the way studies are set up, the way the researchers communicate with the subjects of the study, and what the scientists do with the results, all those protocols should be part of what Dr. Britt Moore calls culturally responsive science. In September of 2022, Professor Moore and his team went to Waccamaw tribal lands in Bladen and Columbus counties to test the soil. This was at the request of members of the Waccamaw community. Phase one of the study is now complete, and we'll learn about those results today because, and only because, the tribe has granted Dr. Moore permission to talk with us. Professor Eric Britt Moore of the Environmental Sciences Department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, leads with the idea that the practice of environmental science should serve the interests of all. Everyone, he says, has the right to healthy soil and clean water. Professor Moore, welcome to Coastline. Thank you for having me, Rachel. It's great to have you with us. Now, you wouldn't tell me anything about the results of this study until you'd consulted with the tribe. Can you talk about the sequence here and why it was critical for you that they determined where the information goes? Sure. Unfortunately, science has a long legacy of going into places and being extractive. Um, doing research, getting data, and then taking that research and data and doing with it whatever the scientists have prioritized, as opposed to being sure that partners get what it is that they want. In other words, so much of the history of science has been a, a one-way relationship. It hasn't been a give and take. It's just been a take. Yeah. And that's not the type of science that I engage in. So it was so important that we move the science in a direction that the community was asking for, not what we wanted to do. What did the community want? What was the community asking for? And in the beginning, they were asking, 
what's in our soil? How did those questions arise for them? The questions arose because of health concerns, frankly. Um, health concerns in the community and, and asking, is there something in the environment that, that's causing illness within our community, that's causing cancer within our community, that's causing all of these other issues? So that's really where it stems from and asking if there's something in the environment that could be causing that. And we're going to get to some of the partners that you worked with on this study and how that came together. But can you tell us first what the results were of the study? What did you find in the soil? Sure. So I want to um, start with the fact that you can only find what you test for. And we had relatively limited resources, so we didn't test for everything. But we did test for several heavy metals, including things like arsenic, cadmium, selenium, mercury, lead. And we also tested for Gen X along with legacy PFAS, including PFOA and PFOS. So we, we found after doing our soil analyses that heavy metals were really not a major issue Neither was Gen X. As you know, Rachel, there's been so much in the news, particularly in this part of North Carolina, around Gen X. So that was at the front of mind for a lot of people, and people supported us testing the soil for Gen X, along with um, the legacy PFAS. We found that heavy metals were not a major issue. There were not levels in the soil that exceeded EPA recommended levels. We found the same with Gen X. There were not abnormally high levels of Gen X in the soil. But these legacy PFAS, the PFOS and the PFOA. Yes. So what, what are those? What are those compounds? The simplest way to explain it is that, um, we call those legacy PFAS because they've since been phased out, but um, they've been used so long um, in lots of everyday products. Like what? Oh, stain guard, things that are designed to um, repel water, so um, things that would, you know, be sprayed on clothing products or jackets, um, coating for sunglasses, even... Um, some types of food containers and things like that. Um, like microwave popcorn bags? I don't know exactly if they okay. have levels of PFAS, but I don't want to get, I don't want to speak out of turn to that. Right. But, but He's certainly a scientist, products like and that. we're going to hear this a lot, which is great. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. It's nonstick pans is a big one. So, um, those nonstick pans that, um, that lots of people use. Um, have things like PFAS in it. So when we're thinking about these legacy PFAS, it includes lots of everyday products um, and some products that we're familiar with, but we don't even necessarily use every day. So for instance, um, firefighting foam is made up a lot of um, some of these PFAS compounds as well. And I know you're not a medical doctor. You you tell me that um, over and over again, so I won't forget that. But what do we know do we know anything about the link between those legacy PFAS and 
cancer, for instance, or other kinds of diseases. Sure, Rachel. So I won't speak into a lot of detail about that because I am not a medical doctor. I'm a soil scientist. But there is a large body of research that exists to suggest that these compounds can be carcinogenic. They can cause cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's certainly a health concern surrounding these compounds. You're so careful in terms, you know, in conducting what you call culturally responsive science and, and making sure that you're not engaging in a kind of uh, transactional or extractive or exploitative relationship. Can you take us back to the beginning of your dialogue with the folks, the members of the Waccamaw tribe, and just talk about how these questions came to you in the first place? Sure. So... The the project that you're speaking about, we called it Soul Science. The Soul Science Project had Ashley Lumboy, who directs the Waccamaw Sioux and STEM Studio, that um, what is the Waccamaw Sioux and STEM Studio? Is STEM as in STEM as in science, technology, engineering, mathematics? So Ashley Lumboy leads that. Maya Miller, who's the executive director of the Cape Fear River Assembly, works closely with the Wakamasuan tribe and sort of acts as a, um, a go-between. It was actually Maya Miller that was looking for scientists to test the water and soil. So she contacted our department and asked, is there anybody that has expertise in this area? So my boss forwarded me the email and said, Britt, you know, are you willing to talk to Maya? I said, sure. So Maya and I spoke, and after about 15 minutes, (laughs) we had a preliminary plan in place. Maya told me, um, you know, hey, Britt, we want to get the soil tested. We want to get this grant to make it happen. The deadline is in about 48 hours. I said, okay, we're going to make it happen. Let's do it. So you got grant money to fund this study? A small amount of grant money. Okay. But it was a small amount. Um, we certainly were great, grateful to receive it. But given that it was a relatively small amount, we had to be very strategic about how we use it. And to be clear, the soil analysis was phase one. They have decided to embark upon phase two of this process. What is that? That's right. So phase one involved testing the soil. But As you know, Rachel, as I'm sure your audience knows, the environment is so much more complex than just soil. There's air, there's water, there's all of these other things in the environment. So phase one was focused on testing soil. But for things like PFAS, they can be present in water. And so much of the tribal community members get their water from well water. So phase two is shifting towards testing water so that people have a better idea about what their potential exposure to these compounds is. And is that part of the study funded yet? That part of the study is still in motion. You're listening to Coastline. UNCW's Professor Britt Moore is with us today. We're exploring the results of a 2023 analysis of soil on local tribal land and also why sharing those results with us is part of 
and environmental justice practice. After this short break, we'll have more with Professor Moore and how he conducts culturally responsive science. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Professor Britt Moore is a soil scientist from UNCW, and he was recently asked by members of the Waccamaw Siouan community to analyze their soil for contaminants. We're learning today about the results of that analysis, which is only phase one of the process. We're also learning about how Professor Moore considers the role of the tribe in determining what happens with the information and what comes next. It's what he calls culturally responsive science. Now you were explaining just before we went to break Mm -hmm. that phase two is going to be groundwater testing. Yes. Because so many of the members of the Wakamasuan tribe get their water from wells. Yes. Which is groundwater. That's right. And just like with phase one, it wasn't my, um, it wasn't, my idea that, hey, we have to do groundwater testing. After we had the results of soil testing, I made a recommendation to tribal members, and they decided to move forward with that recommendation. They're driving what happens. That's exactly right. As far as I'm concerned, my role is tech support. (laughs) So they let me know what they need. I try my best to make that happen with the resources that we have and focus on making sure that I'm in constant communication with stakeholders. How is phase two, the groundwater testing phase, going to be paid for? So we're still in the process of putting those details together, but we've been very fortunate in that phase two is going to um, have the involvement of members of the um, Duke University Superfund research team that are really going to be able to bring some resources to bear to help us be able to move forward in phase two of this project. I want to go back a little bit because you've said to me that they had been asking uh, for a long time about what's in the soil and why are they seeing these incidents of what, cancer, cases of cancer? It seemed to them that it was out of proportion to what would be normal. Yes. So they had a hard time finding someone who, it sounds like, would deal with them directly and make them the focus for, or the, the determiner of what happens with the information. Had anyone tested their soil before? And, and what were some of those interactions like? It's my understanding, based off of conversations that I've had with, with um, various members of the tribal community, that I wasn't the first person to test the soil. I was the first person to test it and make sure that I communicated the result of those tests to tribal community members in a way that was accessible. 
scrubbing all of the technical jargon out of it to make sure that people can understand what it is that's actually in their soils and making a recommendation for um, how things can move forward. Who had tested the soil before and what were they doing with the information? Where was it going? Rachel, I don't have those type of details, so I don't know. All I know is that I, I wasn't the first one to go out there and do testing, but I was the first one to actually communicate the results of any tests that were done. And give them the power. That's exactly right. So I know this is the gazillion dollar question and the answer is complicated and maybe not fully answerable, but what does the presence of these legacy PFAS in their soil mean for the community? Is it, does this mean that they are, is it problematic? Does it possibly point to the fact that there may be it may be responsible for increased cases of cancer. It's such a complicated question, Rachel. And as a scientist, I, I try my best to be very careful about the type of language that I use and to not be hyperbolic. There is a link between, um, between things like cancer and the presence of PFAS, but we didn't even test for all types of PFAS. There's many types of PFAS and we only tested the soil. And soil and water are not the only ways that a person can be exposed to PFAS. As I mentioned before, right. many of these legacy PFAS compounds aren't things that we use on a daily basis. So I say that to say that it, it's a complicated issue. That adds a significant level of challenge to communicating these issues because understandably, people want answers and they want to know what's going on in their environment. But as a scientist, I have the responsibility to, to not be hyperbolic and to try to be as accurate as possible. We tested for a limited number of things over a limited amount of time. We don't have all of the answers. Do members of the Waccamaw community grow things in that soil that they eat? Many members of the community um, have agricultural land. Certainly, um, the practice of being in the soil and growing gardens and, and um, being stewards of plants is certainly a major part of the culture. So yes, there's significant concern about are there contaminants in the soil that are making their way into the plants that we eat? And we don't really know enough yet about how they bioaccumulate in plants. We don't know enough yet. Um, the science has, has not caught up to those questions quite yet. What about just being in the soil with your hands? And can you, are you taking in PFAS through the pores in your skin? There's many potential exposure routes. Um, however, as I mentioned before, the issue is complicated by the fact that you you have this chemical and that you know there's many different types of chemicals that fall under this this PFAS family of chemicals multiple exposure routes there's still so much about it that's just that's not well understood that's why we were so careful to communicate with the with the tribal community as carefully as possible by making it clear we're testing for these things and we can find them in soil, that doesn't mean that the presence of those is causing any kind of abnormally high rates 
of illness. Because they could be also in uh, contaminating their bodies with PFAS, as we all are, from sunglasses or wearing raincoats, right? I mean, that's what you're... Dental it's impossible. Floss. I yeah. mean, like, it's... This stuff is... Um, okay, when you... <laughs> each time you come up with a new, very common consumer product, I just think, well, who cares what's in the soil? Let's just throw up our hands and give up because we're swimming in a soup of PFAS. I mean, really? Like, how do you live with this as a as a human who understands more about it than many of us? Do you look for products that don't have PFAS? I mean, or? when possible, Rachel. Honestly, I don't. I don't lose enough. I don't lose a lot of sleep about that particular issue because we're exposed to a lot of things in in the environment. Um, we are. What concerns me more than my kind of everyday exposure, because just by virtue of being a human being in the 21st century, we're going to be exposed to different levels of hazards and contaminants, and that's just part of being a human in, in modern times. What really concerns me is the disconnect between the everyday public and laypersons and understanding these issues. Even asking people, you know, like, what is Gen X or is, is that a problem? Um, the fact that there remains, like, so much that just the general public doesn't even know to even be able to ask questions about it. Right. That's, that's my concern. So few people, I mean, like, as, as a percentage of the population, ever set foot in an institution of higher learning. So you shouldn't you shouldn't have to take a college class to know about issues that affect you. And I really wish we did a better job about making language about environmental hazards and environmental contaminants and environmental justice more accessible to everyday people. It it should not just be that that the folks that are fortunate enough to attend an institution of higher learning should know about these issues because these issues affect us all. Yeah. And you, so you work hard at talking to members of a particular community, often a marginalized population, um, often a BIPOC community. You, you work hard at speaking in language that they can understand in a very practical way. So what are you teaching them then about science and the results of this, for example? How, how, do, you, how do you teach about this? Rachel, I can't say that it's one way of going about it because communities are different, right? So when I've done work um, on the south side of Chicago, talking to um, you know, black communities about what's in the soil, the focus in the conversation is different than the Soul Science Project that we did with the Wakamau Suen. Why is it called Soul Science? <laughs> it's actually really a funny, a funny story. Um, Maya Miller, who um, who co um, who was co-led this project. Um, well, I shouldn't say co-led because the Wakamau Suen tribe led it, but who was an integral member mm -hmm. of our team. Uh, when we were creating the first information session to give to the community, she was typing it out, 
and she was trying to say soil science when she was typing it. <laughs> and she hit the wrong letter. She she replaced <laughs> the I with a U, and it came up as soul science. And she went to correct it, but she stopped and, and read it and said, this is perfect. <laughs> it should be soul science because it got to the heart of what we were doing. The soil science part mm-hmm. was not nearly as important as making sure that we connected with people, listened to people, and move the science in the direction that people were. So she decided to keep the title, and um, we very much supported (laughs) the name change. Now you asked, you gave a presentation to uh, Duke University scientists and soon-to-be scientists about this study. You did not disseminate the results at the time that you gave the presentation because you had not yet consulted with members of the tribe about what they wanted done with those results. But you did raise a really interesting question in that presentation that resulted in a lot of good discussion. You asked these people whether scientists contribute to maintaining environmental health disparities instead of helping to shrink those disparities. What do you think the answer to that question is? It's like so many things in this field. It's complicated, right? But you do think scientists contribute to maintaining those disparities. I think scientists do, but I mean, I don't think it's deliberate or intentional, but intentionality doesn't (laughs) change the fact that it's still being done. I think so much of, of science is this idea that we gather data and we are objective. And certainly, we try our best to be objective, but we work with people. And there are decisions that are made that are backed in a system of values as to where we decide to practice our science, how we communicate that science, who we communicate it to, who the science is serving. How, how do you establish, so so many scientists, and this was actually something that one of the students in, the, in that room said, we all come into this, or so many of us come into this, because we see a problem somewhere in the community, and we want to help people solve it and understand it. So it's almost, it's this public service orientation that brings so many people into science, and then they lose it. It's sort of like, not Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but... Ms. Smith gets into the lab and then all the corporations come in. Or what What happens? I see it a little bit differently. Okay, Rachel, yeah. I don't know that people lose it. I think so many people go into science with the drive to help people. However, the sciences is not culturally, ethnically, racially diverse. So I think that you can have people that have the best of intentions. But if they don't understand their positionality if they don't understand the issues that other communities are going um, going through, then how can they have a basis to, to practice science in a way that's any different than how they've been taught or what, or what they're used to? Can you say more about what you bring to the table then because of your position and your background and your understanding that say, a white person coming from suburban Illinois might not understand 
like, you know, just part of your background that contributes to this understanding you have of environmental justice and culturally responsive science? Sure. Well, certainly growing up in a predominantly black community on the south side of Chicago, seeing these issues firsthand, being exposed to these issues early on. What kinds of issues did you see? Issues around how environmental quality is different in different neighborhoods. I I remember um, when I was in high school and um, learning about plants and getting really excited about this idea of like, oh, community garden or garden in the backyard and looking at places to do that in the community I lived in and then looking at places to do that in the community where I went to high school, which was a predominantly white community that was more affluent and it having so much more green space and so much more space to do things um, related to community gardens and just thinking like, why is that the case? Why do we not have those same things in our community? And what are some of the factors that that drive that difference? What are some of the factors that... Whew, how long you got, Rachel? <laughs> <laughs> it's as you said at the outset, um, exposure to environmental hazards is is correlated to race and income in our country. It is. And part of that is because uh, communities without a lot of socioeconomic power or political capital can't advocate for themselves and perhaps don't even aren't even getting the information in the first place that they would need to advocate for themselves. Is that, am I? Well, I would say that, that a lot of advocacy is happening um, however, when it comes to decisions that are made um, at a policy level, I, I, st- I don't think that we, we still as a society do not equally value the voices and experiences of BIPOC communities. And I think that gets to a, a big part of the problem. Is, is how those, uh, who's listened to, whose voices are valued, um, where resources go. I think those are all major drivers of some of the disparities that we still see. It seems like part of your practice of science has to include some advocacy and I don't, I don't know if that word makes you cringe a little bit as a scientist, but in journalism, for instance, generally, <laughs> generally, the lines are getting blurred more and more, but you, you're either a journalist or an advocate. Uh, is that true in science, and how do you think about that line? I think there certainly should be separation between science and um, emotional investment in the outcome. So for instance, when I, um, I'll just use the example of soul science. When I am analyzing the soil data, I am, I'm careful 
about not doing anything to bias the, the results the results of that day and we're gonna we're gonna hear more about this yes. when we come back from this break you're listening to coastline we'll also take a look at what issues are worth further exploration of environmental justice in southeastern north carolina when we come back stay with us i'm rachel lewis hilburn for coastline Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Dr. Eric Britt Moore is a soil scientist in UNCW's Department of Environmental Sciences. His exercise of science is through the lens of environmental justice, based on the blindingly obvious but complicated idea that the practice of environmental science should serve the interests of all. Everyone, says Professor Moore, has the right to healthy soil and clean water. And just before we went to break, Professor Moore, I asked you an impossibly complicated question about the role of advocacy in science. And you had just, what you said, where we ended was, you don't want the way you feel about a community or about an issue to influence the results of a study. And we certainly understand that. Just as in journalism, we don't want emotions or investment in an issue to influence the way we tell a story. We want to stick to the facts. But there's, is, there is still some advocacy that goes on, right? I mean, when you think about environmental justice and how you put a community at the center of what you're doing. I don't really think about it as advocacy more more than I think about it as empowerment, right? Like, I don't advocate. I serve as tech support to empower people to be able to advocate for themselves and be able to make decisions. So I don't really see my role as advocacy. Now, it doesn't mean that um, I'm completely detached from these issues. Like, of course, I'm I'm a human being and... It's as you said before, I do believe in basic human rights around everyone, regardless of income, race, any kind of socioeconomic factor, regardless of any of that. You should, you do have the right to clean air, clean water, clean soil. But that doesn't mean that when I'm doing soil analyses that I'm trying to get a certain outcome. It is quite the opposite. I am doing my best to be as careful as possible to give people a picture of of how how the state of the environment is and empowering them to be able to engage in advocacy for themselves. You talked about um, one of the partners in this was the Waccamaw Suen STEM Studio, mm-hmm. and that involves kids, yeah. right? This is educating kids yeah. about different aspects of STEM. What what did they do in the soil study? 
what didn't they do? It's a better <laughs> question. <laughs> when we had to go out and sample the soils, the kids were right there with us, helping us push probes into the soil and extracting samples and labeling bags and marking GPS locations. Yes, the tribal youth were a major part of that project because that is what the Wakama Sioux and Stem Studio um, really prioritized. So again, it wasn't me coming in as a UNCW scientist and saying, you know, this is the way we're going to run the study. It was the Wakama Stem. It was the Wakama Sioux and Stem Studio saying, we need to test the soil. We want our youth to be involved in this and to understand what's going on. How do we make that happen? And then it's up to me to figure out how are we going to make it happen. Yeah. And now you have said to me that you becoming a soil scientist is sort of, you use the word serendipitous mm-hmm. with me. And uh, part of this story is you said things had to happen a certain way. Like you, you were very interested in it, but there were lots of things that just sort of seemed to happen to support you on the path. Can you tell us a little bit about the story and how you got into science in the first place? Yeah, so um, I went to high school at a place which at the time was the only farm school in a city in the entire United States, Chicago High School for Agricultural Sciences. And when I went there, it wasn't because I had any interest in agriculture. I went there because it was a magnet high school. It had a really good record of graduates um, going to universities. And this is what your mother wanted? This is what my mother and my grandmother in particular strongly advocated for. So the interest was to go to a good high school to end up being able to go to a good university. Um, it just happened to be at the Chicago High School for Ag Sciences, not going in with any interest in agriculture. <laughs> but after spending time there engaging in hands-on tactile learning, um, it actually has a working farm at the school. Um, so being involved in that really sparked my interest in the agricultural sciences. And was this the high school you said that was predominantly white? Or the, no? Yeah, so at the time... I don't know the demographics of it now, but at the time, the school was predominantly white, yes. And what kind of challenges did you face in succeeding in that high school? Um, all in all, uh, I, I was very fortunate to have teachers that were supportive. So although it was predominantly white, you know, I still had um, teachers of color that, um, that influenced and mentored and guided me. And even those teachers that were not part of the BIPOC community were by and large very, very supportive. So I can't say that at the school there were um, significant challenges. It was, very, it was a very supportive environment. However, after leaving high school and going into an agricultural science program for my undergrad, um, then it was a lot less diverse. And again, the faculty were very supportive, but being around um, my peers, all of whom were white with the exception of of two other black women, um, 
it was an eye-opening experience because, you know, here I am coming into an agricultural science major from the south side of Chicago, surrounded by people that grew up on farms, and some of them grew up on century farms, like land that's been farmed for more than 100 years. And they're coming to it with this, this background and these set of preconceived notions, and I'm coming to it from a completely different angle. Uh, and it, it, was, it was an experience. Can you talk about some of the things that you confronted for the first time and had to kind of find your way through or around? One of the main issues that I that I remember was just, you know, this idea of which voices we value. Because I can remember plenty of times being in class and there being something that was said as though it was just an assumption that was just factually correct and me challenging it. And it not being considered based on the merits of the challenge, it would just be dismissed as, oh, well, you know, like we, we're farmers. We know this already. Like, what do you know? You, you didn't grow up on a farm. So you're getting, you're getting um, little chinks in your, I mean, it's a little bit of a, an attack, I guess, on your self-confidence? Well, it would or? Be, no, it certainly didn't affect my self-confidence, if anything. I... <laughs> I know that I hit a nerve with them because these arguments that they were giving were not based off of anything that was factual, it was emotional. Mm-hmm. But it did help me understand that all voices are not valued and, and <laughs> um, certainly emotion drives a lot of it and, and who's saying things is sometimes um, more important than what's being said. Which is interesting in the practice of science. Yes. Yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a learning experience. But I am convinced that I came out better because of it. So it it helped to bolster your self-confidence oh, in a lot of ways. I think so, because you have to know your facts and understand argumentation when you are in when you are in spaces like those. That was undergrad. Yes. What came next and, and how was that? So graduate school came next. Um, I went to Iowa State University, and by and large, um, I enjoyed my experience. And it was a supportive community. However, Iowa is 95% white. Uh, And again, very little diversity, especially in the agronomic and soil sciences. So... It was an experience. I mean, I would, um, you know, go out to people's farms and uh, go out to the the rural counties and be the only person of color in these environments. And um, it it's amazing how how still that's strange. How we still have so few professionals of color and students of color in agronomy or in the soil sciences or the environmental sciences. Yeah, and there are efforts now to, I mean, there have been for a long time, but but those efforts are, are multiplying. And you just worked with the Waccamaw Suen STEM studio, which, which is working on that as well. But What, I mean, certainly the south side of Chicago, for people who've never lived there and don't know Chicago, what about the fact that that's where you grew up? And then you went to this magnet school, which might have been part of the serendipity that you describe. But why was it so 
unlikely. Is that a fair term for you to get into soil science? I think that is a fair term. And, and it was unlikely because as a society, we do not value agricultural education for people that live in cities. We just don't even value that or see that as something that's necessary. If you're in K through 12 education, chances are the only way that you're learning about soils or agriculture and the environment is if you live in rural areas where that's prioritized. Or if you're fortunate enough to go to the very, very few magnet schools that will deal with the issue. But it's just not seen as something that K through 12 students should know about. And I find that, um, I find that very problematic because it's such an important issue, right? Food is not optional, right? right? Clean water is not optional. These are very, very important issues. Why are we not prioritize those issues in K through 12 education? Why do we not take um, children from all communities to spaces where they can see how agriculture operates? Why do we not have professionals in the field that are able to, um, to go into these spaces where children are and show them um, what someone can do professionally in the agricultural field to serve as role models? Why is that rare instead of being the norm? Yeah. What are some of the environmental justice issues, potentially environmental justice issues, that you think uh, are right in front of us here in the in the Cape Fear region in southeastern North Carolina. Know the what's in the soil mm-hmm. on Waccamaw Sioux and tribal lands is is part of it. But there are some other issues kind of floating around there, and I know you're studying some of them. I don't want to pull back the curtain until you're ready to do that. Yeah. But can you just talk about what you're looking at right now? There's a few things that my lab is looking at. Um, As you know, Rachel, we focus very much on soil and water quality. Um, In southeastern North Carolina, um, one of the major issues of interest, um, in addition to to water quality, including things like um, PFAS compounds in the water and the soil, is also issues around um, the impact of flooding, the disparate, potentially disparate impact of flooding, um, the the impact of um, of living next to confined animal feeding operations, uh, and whether or not that has um, health and contaminant exposure issues. Um, there's there's lots of environmental health issues in this region and um, yeah there, there's a lot of things that we're certainly interested in but um, a big part of of what we do of what I do particularly not even just in the research but also in the classes that I teach is to create awareness about these issues because uh, Unfortunately, I think environmental justice is almost um, an afterthought a lot of the time. Like people are not even thinking about issues. It gets lumped into these are environmental problems while looking past the fact that these environmental problems do not affect all populations the same. Yes, and so you you hold up flooding as one example of that. 
flooding certainly could be um, an example of that in terms of like where where people are forced to live, where people can afford to live, and the areas that are at the greatest risk of flooding. And that we saw some of that in 2018 with Hurricane Florence. Sure. Is that something that you will explore or are exploring? So that's something um, that um, that is being explored. Um, so there's um, a colleague of mine that I work with that um, that's very much working on that issue. So there's definitely some collaborative research underway to help better understand the disparate impacts that Hurricane Florence in particularly had on our community. Right. And you also mentioned proximity to CAFOs and, and what that does. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm not prepared to speak about that, and we haven't gone out and, uh, and done any um, sampling per se, but um, we have um, a, a project that's, that's been underway to use um, some modern techniques around machine learning and modeling to, to better understand um, some of the correlations between proximity to KFOs and various types of health indicators as functions of race and income. And that is this edition of Coastline. Professor Moore, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find this episode along with links and resources at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.